I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, a bonus episode of Little Atoms, featuring a conversation between Welcome Book Prize winners Andrew Solomon and Marion Coots. For the last two years, Little Atoms has partnered with the Welcome Book Prize, broadcasting interviews with the shortlisted authors. We'll be doing the same this year, and to mark the announcement of the 2016 shortlist on Monday the 14th of March... Here's a bonus episode. This is a recording of a conversation between previous winners Andrew Solomon and Marion Coots, which took place at Libraria Bookshop on the 2nd of March, and Libraria's director, Sally Davis, is the host. 
Hello everyone, I'm Sally, the Director of the Berea, and it is a delight to welcome you all here tonight for a conversation between Marion Coots and Andrew Solomon. Uh, so both are winners of the Welcome Book Prize, and I fear that any attempt uh, to describe them further would fail to capture the breadth of their contributions to the cultural conversation, but I will try all the same. So Andrew is a writer, an activist, a professor of clinical psychology at Columbia University in New York, He's here in his capacity as an author of many award-winning books, including The Noonday Demon and Anatomy of Depression and Far From the Tree, a searching examination of childhood and identity that I find myself constantly recommending to everyone who has children, is thinking of having children, or even wants to understand their own childhood better. Um, it's also my delight to welcome Marion, who is an artist and a writer of the poetic and uh, searing memoir of her and her family's experience after her husband was diagnosed with a brain tumour uh, called The Iceberg. So Marion and Andrew are both chroniclers of life being lived and love being played out at its most precarious and at its most vulnerable and therefore I think at its most intensely human and their books act as a reminder for us living as we do in a culture where we're often encouraged to try and buy our way to happiness that it's often in the grounds of great adversity that we find uh, what it is to be ourselves, our capacity to connect to others and our understanding of what it means to live well and I think Marion and Andrew are writers rare for their clarity, their courage, uh, the beauty of their prose and their work has that effect of giving you a way of seeing the world that once you've read the books, it's very hard to unsee. So um, it's my delight to welcome them. I'll hand over to Marion and Andrew for around 45 minutes of conversation, after which we'll take questions from the audience. So please uh, well, uh, join me in welcoming them. going to start by just doing a little bit of reading. Um, um, I'm going to read, my book is, those of you who know it will know it's written in sections, handy sections, numbered sections, um, and I'm going to read you a section which is called, uh, which is at the start of section two, and it's called 2.1. <coughs> Spring, there is going to be destruction the obliteration of a person, his intellect, his experience and his agency. I am to watch it. This is my part. There is no deserving or undeserving. There is no better and no worse. Cold has pained the ground for months. Now the garden is bursting and splitting. From the window each morning I mark the naked clay seeding to green. I am against lyricism, against the spring, against all growth, against all fantasies, against all nature blast growth and all things that grow. It is irrelevant, stupid, a waste. As nature is indifferent to me, so am I to it. As the air outside thickens and the warmth encourages the earth to release its smell, something is starting to go wrong. It is now March. I say it is March the 11th. In one week, Tom will have another scan. This is the one to fear. Today, as he stands mid-morning by the kettle, chatting and making tea, his language trips into rhythmically correct nonsense. It is ludic, quickly recoverable, but it doesn't sit either with fits or with his usual verbal slippages, and we note the difference in its texture immediately. It is as if language problems are self-seeding and taking root elsewhere. 
The primary confusions up till now have been in epileptic shocks of greater or lesser intensity. Some lie under the radar, barely registering. Others are brash. He is silenced and cannot frame a sentence with meaning. When this happens, the thought that no sense will ever be made again is visual, like a solid mass, as real as an object is real, a tin or a plate or a pen. For him, it is different. Fear is not the issue. Even in the thick of it, he's always trying to work out what is going on, to test himself. He's his own best monitor. There have not been so many fits, but outside them, complexity is multiplying, and thousands of lesser confusions also occur. Words slip out, switches are stumbled over, and substitutions made. Like exotic fauna, the varieties of language proliferate. The scan results are as expected. After nine months of post-chemostasis, it is springtime. The tumour is growing again. Spring. Magnolia sulangiana opens its bells and we are well. Normality is gifted in the form of steroids, two milligrams daily, and immediately he tightens his grip on language and on the connection of meaning to word. He feels much stronger, stimulated. He can do simple tasks without exhaustion, pick up Ebb and carry him. How we adore this high, false peak. It lasts quite a short time, but time is a material stream and we never know how long it will last, so we are taken in by it, of course we are. We are as ever in the moment and we are well, so we are forever well. We are not sanguine, but we've been here before. We are doing our work and we know what the work is. We know we are good at it. We splash about like birds in a bird bath. That's very lovely. Um, I don't very often read from um, from my writings in nonfiction, and when I do, I'm afraid I require a bit more light than there is up here. So I think I will just read a little bit from the very beginning uh, of the book. Um, gives you a bit of a way in. There is no such thing as reproduction. When two people decide to have a baby, they engage in an act of production and the widespread use of the word reproduction for this activity, with its implication that two people are but braiding themselves together, is at best a euphemism to comfort prospective parents before they get in over their heads. In the subconscious fantasies that make conception look so alluring, it is often ourselves that we would like to see live forever, not someone with a personality of his own. Having anticipated the onward march of our selfish genes, many of us are unprepared for children who present unfamiliar needs. Parenthood abruptly catapults us into a permanent relationship with a stranger. And the more alien the stranger, the stronger the whiff of negativity. We depend on the guarantee in our children's faces that we will not die. Children whose defining quality annihilates that fantasy of immortality are a particular insult. We must love them for themselves and not for the best of ourselves in them. And that is a great deal harder to do. Loving our own children is an exercise for the imagination. Yet blood in modern as in ancient societies is thicker than water. Little is more gratifying than successful and devoted children, and few situations are worse than filial failure or rejection. Our children are not us. 
They carry throwback genes and recessive traits and are subject right from the start to environmental stimuli beyond our control. And yet we are our children. The reality of being a parent never leaves those who have braved the metamorphosis. The psychoanalyst D.W. Winnicott once said, There is no such thing as a baby, meaning that if you set out to describe a baby, you will find you are describing a baby and someone. A baby cannot exist alone, but is essentially part of a relationship. Insofar as our children resemble us, they are our most precious admirers, and insofar as they differ, they can be our most vehement detractors. From the beginning, we tempt them into in- tempt them into imitation of us, and long for what may be life's most profound compliment, their choosing to live according to our own system of values. Though many of us take pride in how different we are from our parents, we are endlessly sad at how different our children are from us. So, I've just been saying to Marion, who I met in 3D for the first time about eight minutes ago, um, in 3D. In 3D, yes. In 3D, 3D dimensions, yes. 3D. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> How thrilling it was to, uh, to meet her. I had a call from an editor at the New York Times Book Review in uh, December saying, we really would love you to write one review of five books, and all five books are about death. <laughs> and I thought, that doesn't sound terribly Christmassy. <laughs> and uh, I also thought, however, I have a book of my own that's coming out in the spring, and... I think it's probably not a good idea to alienate the editors of the Times Book Review. At so least I, it wasn't five books about totally different subjects. Indeed, that's, that's right. At least, at least they Which had been, of, yeah, there was some coherence. So, but one of the books was Marion's, and I sort of had this pile of books, and I, you know, and I and some of them were they were all perfectly fine, but they were sort of got to be rather heavy going, and my father wasn't doing very well, and I was in hospital with him, and I was reading books about death, and it was all sort of rather bleak, and then I was so ripped by yours and, and wrote a review in which I said so, but by the mm. honesty and the clarity and the richness of it, that it didn't have any of that. <laughs> it had neither any air of self-aggrandizement nor any um, air of sort of, I'm stripping everything back and showing you only some bare-bones version of things. It felt mm. lush but never self-indulgent, which mm. I think is quite tricky. So. And it's very much it's a book about three of us. It's very much about the you know the idea of the child being totally central to this grouping. Yes. Because because we were um, well not of course I mean this is I can't assume any knowledge but you know we were quite sort of late parents in a way so there was a lot of reasons why we might not have had this child. Um, and I kind of think it was it was always very important for me that his his story or how his experience of this kind of disaster was um, as much in there as each of ours. And the sort of, um, in a way, it's, it's, I don't know, it just seems to be very much about parenting, really, how to parent, because, of course, one parents through good times and one parents through very bad times. And what does that mean, you know, and the kind of, uh, and what is it to stop parenting? Because there's, there's a, a bit in it where I'm kind of going... Oh, you know, I, I've forgotten to parent because we're just too busy. You know, mm. we're kind of too sort of there's too much going on. Um, but that, you know, that's a sort of funny thing that actually the child goes along with you all the time conti- and, and grows whatever. Or you know, obviously in our situation that that was happening. So there were these kind of parallel uh, stories going on, which seemed to be very important to put in there, really. 
I framed my own book with um, the story at the beginning of being the son of my parents and at the end of becoming a father. Mm. But I had children in the course of writing the book. And I found that I had to go back, given that it was a book about family, and reimagine almost every one of the narratives because there were so many things that hadn't made sense to me that suddenly did. Um, and some things that had made sense to me and suddenly didn't. Um, not because I suddenly discovered that the truest love in the world is the love for your children. You know, it wasn't a sort of mawkish um, thing along those lines. It was just to keep thinking how puzzling and how disorienting it is to have someone enter the world mm. and equally puzzling and disorienting to have someone leave it. Mm. Um, and I thought part of what was strong in your book was the, the I mean, it was your life. It wasn't strong in your book through some mm. contrivance, but was the fact that you were dealing with these two kinds of dependency at once, mm. dealing with someone who is just developing language, and what does it mean to go from having none to having some, and with someone who is losing language, mm. and what does it mean to go from using it all the time to not having the words to hand. And also how to kind of, I don't know, the sort of the enjoyment of the developing language was not lessened, do you know what I mean? It was like, there's no, it was almost like, nothing mitigates anything else or something we still had huge enjoyment in that and yet it was still I don't know nothing, nothing sort of there's no stacking up there's no that something makes something less bad yes everything is always equally bad but just goes wrong at the same time which is a kind of funny thing in a way to think about um and of course, it's much easier when people speak about, I don't know, stuff like catastrophes. There's a kind of, people often use things like they say, oh, it's ironic, or this and this and this. And actually, I don't know, I think everything is, the thing I was kind of struggling with, in a way, was how everything, these real oppositional things continued. And they didn't lessen each other, and they didn't, I don't know, they just sort of continued. And you just had to have the capacity to kind of deal with them in a squashed together way which one wouldn't have thought one could be able to do mm. beforehand. Mm. It's one of, I suppose, the hallmarks of maturity to be able to contain contradictory ideas. Is it? And it is, yes. And you're there. Did you know that? <laughs> Did you know I've that? I just stumbled upon it. Well, you just thought so. that up. <laughs> no one ever told me that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I felt in writing about families of children who were different in various yeah. ways that what was striking me is people kept saying, oh, those families of uh, children with disabilities, that must be really heavy. And then I have a chapter on prodigies, and people said, oh, that must be the fun one. And I said, no, because the yeah. surprise about having a child with a disability is that actually you adjust to it quite quickly, and it really isn't so bad as you would have thought. Indeed, for many people, it becomes a great nexus of meaning. Mm. And the surprise of having a child who's a prodigy is that it isn't so much fun as you might have thought, mm. because actually prodigies are incredibly demanding and it's very difficult to bring them up in any way that leaves them anything other than sort of neurotic and tortured as they um, as they go along when they're and you're essentially fueling them or you're yes. trying to fuel them or sort of going along in their wake or something yes. yeah and i thought that was that was kind of interesting that chapter because it was it was quite a different sort of i don't know it was like things were seen in a kind of different way um but you you i mean you wrote that book over quite a long time didn't you so you were kind of going in and out of all these very very sort of almost like starburst experiences um of individual lives and i was kind of curious how that sort of i don't know what that felt like because like obviously you, you would do a certain thing and then you would have the memory of seeing someone else before and it would how how did it how did it feel like sort of cumulatively in a way 
At the beginning, it felt as though I was doing these separate interviews. Yeah. I knew some families dealing with autism, yeah. I knew some families dealing with criminality, I knew families dealing with the other topics of the book. The connection between them, the presumption of which had been behind my taking on the whole topic yeah. of the book in the first place, um, the connection between them came to feel more and more obvious. Um, as I found people in what appeared from the outside to be such different uh, experiences coming out with some of the same turns of phrase or the same positions and attitudes. And the trick in a way was to deal with the fact that some of the families there I met once for two hours, I recorded an interview, they told me their story, it was reasonably coherent and it's in. And there are some families in the book whom I was interviewing on a monthly basis for a full decade. And how do you put them all in a book together and not have them feel out of kilter and out of balance? I think what I came to in the end is that different people, I mean, this is unbelievably banal, different people communicate in different ways, um, that there are people who actually can tell their story in a very condensed way, mm. and there are people who can't, and there are stories which, for all of the external trappings of complexity, retain at their core a kind of elegant simplicity, and there are stories that seem as though they should be straightforward, but in which the complex workings of unacknowledged ambivalences and so on are much more Baroque than they would seem. Mm. And I sort of let myself be led by the people I talked to. So there were some people I talked to who would then say, um, well, this was really great, but can we, I just, I have to think about this, and what if I called you next week? And I sort of, if that was how they wanted to go about it, that was fine. And there were other people who sort of, I felt it was difficult and painful for them to talk to me. They had decided to do it. They did it. And after they'd done it, I sort of, you know, it was time to sort of not keep pestering them yeah. and, um, and bother them um, and bother them again. And then I think very much like, I don't know, people you've been at university with or something, there were people who I thought while I was writing the book I would be attached to forever. It seemed like such a profound engagement. None of whom I've argued with, but many of whom I just sort of haven't much kept in touch with. Mm. And there were a few people whom I liked a lot, but whom I didn't know I would be in touch with, to whom I've remained very, very much... Um, very much attached, and partly that's a pleasure just because some of them are really quite remarkable people and it's nice to be connected to them, um, but also partly because it's nice not to have to let go of the more complicated stories mm -hmm. and to feel that they are continuing to unfold, and since I'm no longer writing about them, I become sort of a reader of the material I was previously trying to write. Mm -hmm. Did you feel when you had when you had started to write the book that it was a way of pinning down what your life had been like with Tom? Did you feel you were doing it in part for your son so that he would have a document of what it had all been? Um, well, it, it didn't start out as a book at all, really. It started out as, as a bunch of words. Um, and because I didn't have any experience of writing a book, or indeed any desire to write a book <laughs> beforehand, it was more like it started out as a real... Um, Almost, almost kind of like against annihilation. We were in this complete sort of mad thing that had, you know, had sort of upturned us. And I think it was probably in about in about the summer of 2009. Tom was diagnosed in late 2008. And, um, and of course he was writing all the time. So writing and language were the matter of our house. And as the language got less, the actual finding of the words and the, the potency of really down to the individual word got sort of even more exacerbated. So in a way it was kind of like... I just, I started writing stuff almost as, and it was very visual. It was all kind of, it was about kind of, almost of like trying to make these lenses 
little le- and that's why you know and they're all in these little chunks you know there's these sort of which have become you know numbered sections so it was almost like these little lenses through which you could look at something you could see something and you could think about something and it might have been like a kind of an incident or a kind of thought or a kind of wider slightly umbrella because you know some, some things go very small and some things are wider and then some things kind of arc and it's a kind of way of almost like literally being able to visualise and see um, some of the stuff which was being given to us to live through in a way and that was all you know it was very it was all just like individual word documents it was all separate and sometimes sometimes the, the, the subject was the there wasn't any content it was just like that was the subject, you know, it was, it was, so it was like a kind of one-line thing. And it was only much later, you know, because this stuff kind of piled up, really, and I do it at night, and I, but, you know, I don't know when I do it, really, but I just do it. Um, and then it was only much later that I started to think that it was a work. And once I thought it was a work, once I understood it was a work, I knew what to do with it. And that was really quite a big... A sort of odd, interesting point. I don't know. The idea that then this stuff, which was just matter, I mean, literally, like, here's some words which mean... I mean, in a way, when you lose words, you know, it's like Tom was looking for a word and, you know, what is what is what is book? What is home? Mm. What is knife? Do you know what I mean? It's like almost like here is knife. Here, do you know, it's a kind of almost sort of wrapped up in, in, in the thing itself the meaning of the thing, the articulation of the thing. So it was almost, this, there's a real, um, it was a real attempt to, to be very, to have that physicality, to nail that physicality in a way. But of course, uh, and, and so if, with all that kind of matter, at a certain point when I realised it was a work, then of course you had, it wasn't just matter, it was like a kind of matter with voice, because like it had a voice already, you know, whatever. And then it just became, I don't know, then I just thought, okay, it's, it's a book, this is what we do with a book. So that was kind of quite a two-stage process, mm. you know, quite a sort of... Um, and then a book involves an edit. What do you do with an edit? You know, you have what do you take out? Um, what did you take out? Tons of stuff, tons of stuff. Because I think... And I think that's really interesting about the idea of editing. Again, the only thing I've ever edited has been videos and films, and I think, in a way, there are some... There are quite strong links between my process of editing video and films, which is, of course, you know... I just learned myself. It wasn't like I went to editor's course or anything. In art school, one doesn't learn. One doesn't learn how to do things. Um, you kind of learn yourself, uh, and it's a very good way. It's a very good way of learning. Let me insist. Um, but but I think there is quite a, like they like there's I don't know I, there's obviously it's it, it's quite anti-linear. It's kind of it's got cuts all the time. It is chronological, but it's only because I put it in chronological order. Mm. It wasn't written chronologically. And it was very anti-chronological, because, of course, you knew what the chronology was. So it was almost kind of, at first, I thought I wanted it to be a kind of shuffle book, you know. And I thought that would be really gimmicky. Shuffle book. And I thought there was enough shuffle component to make that work. Because I, I didn't want, I had no interest, really, in writing something which was a tum ti tum ti tum ti tum story. Because actually that wasn't the point, mm. I didn't think. I don't remember what your question was, did you? <laughs> Sorry. Did I, I ask a question? I'm sure I did. I don't know. Process. I mean, process, I think, is always a, yeah. an interesting topic. Absolutely. I mean, I certainly worked... I went out and interviewed these families, these um, hundreds of families, and then I ended up with these enormous um, uh, 
enormous piles of transcripts. Yeah. And then uh, I feel as though I would sort of go off for a month here and a month there, and I would decide I'm just going to go through the um, uh, transcript and try to turn it into um, a coherent narrative of a particular family. So I would go and do a transcript, um, and, you know, some people... Well, actually, no people really tell their story in order. And so part of it was just a kind of pulling the pieces and getting them into sequence and then mm-hmm. figuring out which ones were really relevant and interesting and mm-hmm. which ones weren't particularly and how to kind of assemble them. And then at some point, I had sort of these many, many episodes, and then I had to take the research I'd been doing sort of in fits and starts and use it to put them together. But there was a lot of sequencing and resequencing and thinking, oh, well, maybe that one is too much like that one and so on and mm-hmm. so forth. That it felt in the end a little as though I'd made a lot of ornaments and I now needed to hang them all on a tree and get it to kind of be shapely and attractive and not all bunched up here or all the red ones there or anything like that. <laughs> so that's a very visual way of thinking. That's a very... Yes, um, I suppose it is. Um, but I also, I mean, you were dealing with being true to your own experience. I also felt as though I had put people through a lot. And over and over again, I would say to people, it seems that it's very difficult and even traumatic for you to discuss this with me. Why did you decide to do this interview? And over and over again, people would say, I felt very much alone in these experiences. Mm. And if my telling you about them will help someone else to feel less alone, then I'm willing to do it even though it's very difficult. Mm. And when I heard people saying that, I thought, okay, but then I can't have taken all of this from you and not present what it is you're trying to put forward. On the other hand, I'm also not just a transparent one who's kind of arranging your quotes in order and putting them out there. So the question of how to how to shift it and how to contain it and what was too personal to write about too explicitly and what wasn't. There were a lot of balances to strike. I was interested when we were talking before in your saying that your son slightly has regretted uh, that you're not having used his real name. Yeah. And I think that can sort of shift back and forth. And for the American and indeed a number of the other editions of my book, I had a photograph. There was a silhouette of my son as a baby that was on the cover that ended up being sort of all over the place. I've got that but it's, yeah. Yes, yeah. and it's not identified anywhere uh-huh. in the book as being a photograph of him. Uh-huh. And he has sort of said to me, on the one hand, you know, who's very proud when, I don't know, there was a magazine out or something, and he sort of saw it there. And on the other hand, he said, why didn't you put my name there? And I said, because I'm afraid in five years, you would have been saying to me, why on <laughs> earth did you think you could go ahead and do that? No, it's true. And it was, I kind of, I felt me and Tom, we were, you know, fair game. It was, it was, it was, you know, we weren't consenting in this, but we were adults at least. And, uh, and with our boy, who's in the book, he's called Ev, and his real name is Eugene, um, and when I told him that I, I gave him the name Ev, at first he thought it was a kind of, I said it was a secret name. This is a secret name, a nice secret name. And he was very happy with that. And then later he said, um, he was crossing me, and he said that he wanted to participate more in the book. He mm-hmm. said that he wanted his name to be used so he'd be a participant. Um, which is kind of, I don't know, he's, the book is completely soaked in him. You know, it's sort of, I don't know how I could have, apart from only writing about him, I don't know how I could have done it differently. But I think that is that is an issue, kind of, and also it's quite. I mean, there are huge, as is very clear from from reading the book, there were huge amounts of other people involved. There was circles and circles of friends, and there was family, and there was it's it's a very kind of, um, in a way, it's a kind of, it was a massively social dying, 
But again, everyone has their own take. You know, I have my take, but a, a friend of Tom's would have his own take. And it seemed very... I had to sort of think very carefully about how to... Um, how to talk about that and, and all the, the friends of mine in it are only known by their first names doctors have just letters so it's like mm. Dr. B so it's a kind of coding of almost like these these characters in a way um, and that was partly because I just thought it's you know I can't appropriate things I, I have to it has to be written it's written from the inside um, but I think you have to be careful about how you how you use the experiences of others in, in that way and obviously because I didn't really have the experience of it before that was the way I, you know I came up with that as a thing to do but yeah it's kind of it's I don't know so I said to everyone I interviewed um, that I could use their actual name or I could use a pseudonym and I mm. gave everyone the option to decide which mm. they wanted and then I gave everyone and I had done it with the book on depression that I'd done previously I gave everyone the option to choose his or her own pseudonym, if you were so inclined, which people got rather a kick out of um, out of doing. And then I indicated in the notes where they were pseudonyms and where they weren't. But I had one experience that was sort of quite compelling to me, which is that for the chapter on families of kids who commit crime, um, I had wanted in doing that chapter to indicate that um, the difference that a family encounters by having a child who has a, a noticeable difference or disability is in many ways not so different from the um, experience of a family whose child has disappointed expectations through behavior. And then in the same way that most people with Down syndrome are not born to parents with Down syndrome, most criminals are actually not born, contrary to popular perception, to parents who are um, criminals, nor even necessarily to parents who are abusive and terrible parents. But in the crime chapter, I had sort of changed everyone's names because they were juveniles. It was sort of, I think it was legally what I was supposed to do. It was in the permission forms that they signed before we started the interviews and so on and so forth. And then one of the people who was in the book wrote to me, and she said, I've really been thinking about it. She said, and I'm actually, and she had gotten a job in a bank. And I thought, okay, but do the people in the bank actually know what your whole background was? Because since her, it was a felony, but it was a juvenile felony. She had served some years, but it was not in a record. I said, aren't you worried? I mean, and what if you go to another job and your name is out there? And she said, I, I got from there to here, she said, and I want to tell the world I did it. And she was very definitive about it. And yeah. it was interesting to me how some people really long to have that kind of record of who they are and how other people shy away from it with so much discomfort and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And with children, it's very difficult to know. I mean, with anyone, it's difficult to know, but especially with children, it's difficult to know whether the way that they feel at the time that you're discussing with them is going to be the same as the way they'll feel when it's published, and the same as they'll feel five years after it's published. Mm -hmm. Did Tom, did you start on the book, sort of, while he was alive, how much of it did you no. do? I mean, there was there was writing. There was this material while he was alive, um, just stuff. And then, um, really, in the in the last year of his life, we were kind of me and other friends were very much engaged with with helping him sort out his his work in a way. And there were these five projects he wanted to see published, and he was very on it. He was very focused about it um, and there were two books collected essays which came out with Francis Lincoln and then there was the granted book until further notice I'm alive which is probably in this bookshop somewhere um, and so that kind of 
what I wanted to do and what was a kind of in a way a sort of a pleasure to do but quite was was kind of work on those was get those out in a way so really I, I can't believe I did it this quickly but I think I did I think that the first um, Francis Lincoln book came out in 2011 that's true but it was very mm. it was it was it was basically that he he knew when he was in guy's hospital he knew that we'd, we'd, the contract had been signed and so and he knew what the essays were and i knew which ones needed work and all that kind of stuff and he was still very um it was just his pleasure you know and he was even though he, he was his, his language was extremely disordered his intellect was not so it was like a question of how to kind of how to work with that and obviously because I knew his language so intimately I was the speediest but there are others who could do that you know pretty quickly mm. um, so there was all this there was all this kind of I don't know I was suddenly in a way looking back it was quite mad because you know after he died then I was suddenly in a, a very particular quite professional world of being his editor and being very very close to his language you know and for those of you who know his writing obviously he kind of you know, he wrote in the Independent, goodbye Independent, but he wrote in the Independent for many years, and um, and he had you know a particular voice, and these were essays from his weekly publications, you know, um, and it was very kind of, and again it was a sort of thing I felt even though I'd never done it before, it was a thing I felt extremely confident about, and in a way it was somewhere for my brain to go. I think that was what I was looking for. It was, it was kind of like I couldn't. Also, and, and interesting about sort of pla kind of brain and plasticity and all that kind of stuff, because at that point, and really for a, a quite a long time after he died, I couldn't actually read. I couldn't read anything. Like, I couldn't read a newspaper. It didn't make sense. Mm. I could never read any fiction. It just didn't make... Why would anyone want to make things up or whatever? So I couldn't kind of, in a way, make sense of text, but I could do this work absolutely accurately without any problem. So that was kind of where it was almost a kind of funnel. That's where I sort of my head went to so there was I was very involved with 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 editing with first that first great works and then the um Granta book and all that time underneath it I was kind of debriefing away on my own, my own stuff and so only only after I think the third one was in the can did that you know my book start to come out really in any kind of official like here's some material that anyone could read do you know what I mean so it was a kind of strange, um, it was kind of like a sort of apprenticeship in a funny way, of, of language and of editing and of thinking about the world inside your head and then other people. And the question that I got asked, especially after the Depression book, but after this one too, was, was it cathartic? Um, and did you did it make you feel better to write it all down? And my feeling, certainly in writing about depression, where there was a great deal of autobiography on subjects that some people um, don't choose to share very much about, uh, was that it was not cathartic in the sense of somehow I wrote it and then I felt better. It cheered me up to get it all down on paper. Um, what I felt was, um, was compelling to me was A, the idea that perhaps in writing it down it would be helpful to someone else, and B, the sort of corollary idea that if it might be helpful to someone else, that experiences that had felt barren and useless as I lived them might turn out, in fact, to have some value, which would allow me to have a narrative of my life in which there wasn't a sort of stretch of time off. And, of course, I did a certain amount of writing, not while I was in the pitch of despond, because I think the pitch of despond is not usually a very productive place to be, 
but I did some writing as I began to emerge from the pitch of Tisman to sort of try to get it all down and then an awful lot of what I wrote, you know, it was quite useful to me and I occasionally sort of thought I should show it to a shrink or something, but mm. it was not anything that the rest of the world would have been interested in or would have wanted to read. Mm. So I found it took a lot of discipline to figure out where am I writing things which actually are for other people and where am I writing things that are for myself and how do I sort out the stuff that is only for myself and kind of make sure that nobody else has to be bothered with it and get the stuff that actually might be useful to other people, some of which is very explicit autobiography out there. Mm. And I wonder how you struck those challenging balances. I'm, I'm very against the word cathartic. Right. I, I fight it at every opportunity. <laughs> I really, I, I think it's a kind of, it's sort of too easy or something. And I think it's partly to this business about, um, I, I don't know, the sort of... Um, you know, there was. I think discipline is hugely. Is I agree with totally with that. I think there's the. I mean, you were asking me earlier about um, about sort of um, being known, and you know, in a way that I can't remember how quite he phrased it, but and, um, it was like, do you feel exposed? Because it was it was very much about you. And I th I think the the difference between the sort of lived experience and then the written experience is so total, just like ludicrous. And I had that. I obviously I learnt that, mm. um, and it's so total. And there's such a kind of there's such a sort of there's so much you can do in that gap in a way between um, that I thought was rather amazing so it's like I kind of I felt very anti the idea of catharsis and I felt that it was and again people would say oh is it very hard to write and I thought well actually it was great to write it was extremely hard to live but it was really great to write mm. because I could go oh I'm just thinking about whether that sentence goes there and does that do that and if I put that there suddenly the whole thing works that is great that is making something, you know. So it was kind of, and it, but I just don't think that's cathartic. I think that's a work. Yes, I curiously always like that late stage of making all of those little adjustments yeah. that suddenly cause it all to fall into place. Yeah, it's quite boring at one level, but it also it's endlessly satisfying. Endlessly um, satisfying. As opposed to the sort of the drama of the blank screen or the sort of incoherence and, and you so cut sure words out the whole time around. you go yeah. that can go that can go that can go it's really brilliant yeah. just gets thinner and thinner <laughs> <laughs> mine didn't actually get that yeah, much yours, thin. Is <laughs> yours is so not thin <laughs> one friend of mine said when it came out she said your book is so good I can't put it down but unfortunately I also can't pick it up <laughs> so um, I felt in mind that I was trying to make a fairly radical argument that families dealing with all these kinds of difference were all had a great deal in common. Mm. And I thought I couldn't make the argument unless I showed some depth of investigation into each of the separate ideas. So it really was like yeah, writing sort true. of 10 or 12 books on these different topics that I was um, mm. that I was addressing. And I thought at one point, that's getting just sort of too huge and it's unwieldy and I should sort of pull them apart, but I felt as though when I started pulling stories out, that it then began to sound as though, well, okay, you met three families that were dealing with autism, but there's an awful lot of diversity in how people experience autism, and you can't just generalize from those three stories. And so that was the point at which I thought, all right, well, then I, I probably need to put the others in mm. to, to pull it off. But, but I feel like the, the center of the book really is an argument about identity and about the ways in which families manage to reinforce or damage the identity of their children. And so I think that's different from yours, which wasn't about an argument per se. It mm. was about a kind of narrative and about the incredible intimacy of that episode of loss. I mean, there there are 
it was much more ranty the early versions mm. some quite a lot of ranting came out because right. I thought oh it's not that kind of book but there's a lot I think there's a lot of embedded ranting which I think is very important um, stuff to do with you know where you go to die the whole kind of cultural event of dying how you shouldn't die in hospitals mm. um, the whole business about humans in context you know how actually to you know to remove and you know that was what we were battling for really in as much as anything else was to keep our context going to have a home essentially and that's what happened with the getting to the hospice it allowed us a home and therefore we could just continue and we continue in, in as, uh, as relaxed a way as we were normally continuing except the fact that Tom was dying you know um, and I think that oh, that all felt very kind of just very important to sort of to kind of to navigate that terrain and talk about that and also luck weirdness about luck um, how in a way we had luck even though we didn't mm. I think I said in writing um, the review, and I think it stayed in, but if it didn't, it was deeply meant, um, that it was part of what was so agonizing about reading the book was that one was torn between horror at the experience of loss you were having and wonder at the experience of love that was the necessary Mm. predicate of that Mm. loss, um, or antecedent, rather, of that loss. Um, That it was a book in which it was so clear how much genuine love there was among all three of you and how complicated that love was but mm. how inviolable it was. And I thought there are many people, you know, it's the old, is it Browning um, or Tennyson or someone who's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? I think that's Tennyson. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, well, you have really lost, but you have also really loved. And love is one of those things that's very difficult. I mean, even though it's what most people write about all the time, it's still Interestingly, extremely difficult Interestingly, I know, it's about. very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no. So, and it was in a way why in my own book, I sort of wanted to frame it with the, the story of my parents, who you know could be maddening, but whom I essentially loved, and the story of becoming a father, which has been um, uh, a grand and splendid and glorious thing in its um uh, realization and one that I didn't necessarily think was going to come along because the whole relationship that I had to all of these families I was writing about was of necessity filtered through my own you know I always think all nonfiction is at some level autobiography and I attempt to fight back against that and make it no more true than it has to be um, but it is so defining and I'm very struck by it in the experience of the people I've written about because I have found over time that there are people I wrote about in um, terms that I felt really ultimately reflected my lack of regard for the way that they had done things, and who I thought were going to be incredibly offended, and who rang me up and said, I love your book, it's so wonderful, it's a beautiful portrait of my marriage, it should, and they were all enthusiastic. And there were other people about whom I had written in absolutely glowingly admiring terms who called me up and said, I can't believe you wrote that, and how could you even think it, and I want my name taken out, and so on and so forth. And I realized in the end that what one actually writes has very little to do with how other people feel about being written about. It's how they feel about themselves and their situation that tends to determine how they feel about seeing it laid out on the page. Did any of the people, I'm curious, the doctors, the... The friends, has anyone particularly said they didn't recognize themselves as portrayed or? No. Uh, one person sort of slightly kind of 
abdicated. <laughs> Can't describe it better than that. Uh, but otherwise than that, not. Right. Should we talk to these people, do you think? Yes, yeah, just yeah, the person is a good I might, I might yeah. actually, if I can be so bold, start. <laughs> um, I was just, I was very interested in, uh, in both your work, I think, you touch on, uh, well, you deal very directly with actually the way we make meaning from choices that we haven't made in our lives or things that happen to us not but of our own volition. Uh, and I often think that we're encouraged to view our lives as the sort of the sum total of our choices, but actually you both write very powerfully about meaning that can be made under conditions of constraint and things that happen to you rather than you fashioning in the world. And I was just curious for your reflections on uh, the different kinds of meanings we can make uh, as between when we make a choice and as between when difficult circumstances befall us. I think it's true. I think that business about choice is quite, is, is such a load of hokum, really, isn't it? I mean, we're all sort of, you know, ever more sort of larded on with the idea that we can, we can pick our way through, we can sort of, you know, create this existence, whatever. And it kind of just felt like, rather relaxing <laughs> in a funny way to you know I don't know for me personally like various choices okay so so when Tom was ill it, or became ill or realised that he was ill um, it, it was this imperative okay and I didn't we didn't know m enough about it at that point but it was clear that whatever it was was going to require all my attention and then some you know what I mean and sort of from that lots of things followed like certain things like you know I, I immediately gave up my studio I stopped essentially I had this sort of career thing and I just thought well, puff, you know, I, that isn't where it is, and where it is is here. And there was a kind of, there was a, obviously a kind of imperative in that, and I suppose on some level I could have chosen not to do that, but it didn't seem like that was available. And there was, oddly, a kind of relaxation in that. And I know that Tom talked about it in his book, also the, what happens when, you, when your whole notion of the future is completely up for grabs. There's a kind of, you actually your choices are, they're just not there. Do you know what I mean? And what that does to you, and what that does to kind of your your sense of yourself as a being who goes through time is pretty major, you know? And so, and, and he too is kind of, it just allowed other things to come up in your brain, you know? So I, I don't know, there's quite a, I th yeah, I think that business about how the idea of choice needs to be carefully approached seems quite important, really. I think that for me, the, the question was always resilience. I mean, my first book was about a group of Soviet artists and how their lives changed during Glasnost, and I really wanted to understand how, under these circumstances of tremendous adversity, they had managed to find so much rich meaning in their um, lives. Um, it was a novel about my mother's illness and death and about the ways in which the process of the final year of her, uh, her battle with ovarian cancer became a time of extraordinary intimacy, not one that any of us would have chosen, but one that was very precious. And then as I started writing about people who were depressed, I was very much struck that there were people who had what sounded like relatively minor depression who were nonetheless completely disabled by it. And there were people who had what sounded like much more significant depression who somehow or other found meaning in their lives nonetheless. And I became interested in the, the way that personality and illness come together. And I ultimately felt that what people most need in order to achieve resilience is the ability to craft a coherent narrative of their lives. And if you think, well, that wasn't part of my life, that, you know, my mm -hmm. mother's death, your husband's death, my depression, the sort of I have a child with Down syndrome, if you try to kind of push it away and just have a normal life that that hasn't interfered with, 
you're forever under threat because the reality that your life isn't that simple mm -hmm. and isn't that straightforward and doesn't fit to the attractive narrative you've had in mind is always waiting to ambush you. If you can integrate that experience of difference into your understanding of yourself and say, my life has had these good and bad things and they're all a part of my life, then when something else bad happens, it doesn't disrupt your identity. It surprises it you, it shocks you, yeah. it perhaps alarms mm -hmm. you. And I really think it's not that I particularly think, um, you know, everyone should have a depression because you learn so much from them and it's such a terrific experience, you know, or that everyone should have um, their mother die at 58 or that everyone should have a child with a disability or any of those things. What I think is that given the fact that all of us will have the impingement of some kinds of misfortune in our lives, you can make the determination that you're going to find whatever there is of value there. And sometimes I think, as I believe I said even in reviewing Marion's book, sometimes I think that idea of um, becoming enthusiastic about the inevitable is just a survival tactic. But I think there's a lot of beauty in it. And I would say even, I mean, at the moment, my father is very old and not very well. And um, I was saying the other day to someone, but we've had some really amazing and very intimate conversations out of it. She said, well, you're not trying to say that you're... And I said, no, of course. If I could help him to be younger and better, I would do it in an instant. But I can't. So given that the reality we have is the reality we have, it's been important to me to think, is there something that's possibly redemptive in it? And I don't think that I've manufactured what's redemptive. I think that difficulty, in fact, is the place where a lot of growth um, uh, takes place. And I think that the retrospective understanding of your own pain as having in some sense been illuminating is very important. And I'll, I'll end this long answer by saying that I was very much moved when I was talking once um, to the Buddhist scholar Robert Thurman about the idea of nirvana. And he said, you know, people in the West always misunderstand nirvana. They think nirvana is the same as heaven, which is to say you've been through all this difficult and miserable stuff and now you have only happiness to look forward to. He said, nirvana is not a matter simply of looking forward. He said, because whatever happened would always be shadowed by the pain that came before. Nirvana comes not only when there is only joy to look forward to, but when you look back at all of the pain you've had and understand it as a component of the joy that you've now achieved. And I thought that was a very profound reflection on the nature of resilience itself. Thank you. One of the things, just very briefly, one of the things that Tom uh, talked about in his in his book, he, he was talking about the, the experience essentially of dying, and he just he said it's a lesson in imagination, in self-imagination. I think that idea about sort of bringing yourself to bear on your current circumstances and thinking, what can I do here, is so kind of exciting in a way, and so sort of. Um, I don't know, perhaps not what we're used to or something. And he, 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 you know, he always had a great deal of humour to bring to that situation, like you know, the idea of being helpless, then what do you do with your helplessness? You know, that sort of, how do you sort of, how do you look at the situation that is now and think, what, what can I do here? What can be done? What can be orchestrated out of these, you know, sometimes very parlous ingredients? Mm. Thank you. Any questions? <coughs> Marion and Andrew. Well, I could ask a question to Andrew, because I, I imagine in your book you deal with families who have adopted children, because you talked about how um, parents sometimes see their children as <coughs> not reflections of themselves, but sometimes extensions of themselves, or something they would like them to be like. 
and with adopted children, and I think maybe I'm generalising that many adopted children have problems growing up. How, how, in your experience, you've seen that those how adopted children grow through their lives with the parents that <laughs> didn't know what they were going to get. I'm just starting work on a book about um, the changing nature of family and the idea that we have you know, working mothers, we have fathers who are much more involved in childcare than their fathers were before them, we have gay families, we have various different complicated modes of adoption, open adoptions, transnational, transracial, we have single parents by choice, single parents not by choice, etc., etc., trying to look at the sort of completely changing nature of family. So in that context, I have looked um, a little bit at adoption, and I have also looked at it because there were a number of adoptive families in Far From the Tree. I feel as though adoption in some ways is a better preparation for the idea that your child will be unlike you. You know, if you have gone and taken your child from an orphanage in Ecuador um, and you're a sort of settled middle-class English couple, you know that this child has come from someplace else in a way that the child that you give birth to, you do not. The thing that has been unsettling to me is to discover that across Western societies at this point, there are so many people who are adopting children, and the children who are available for adoption so often come from very troubled circumstances that in the latest statistics that I read, approximately 20% of these families end up returning the children in some fashion or another. And 20% is a lot of children to be returning. And you're left thinking, on the one hand, I can see that a child who has been abused in an orphanage and um, has an attachment disorder and steals and smashes things and so on that can be very wearing and very difficult. On the other hand, it seems to me that parenthood altogether is not a good sport for perfectionists, and you have to be prepared to work with the person you've, you've been given. So I don't pass a high judgment. I can imagine that you know these things can be very difficult, and if it's a family that really can't cope, it's better to return the child than it is to kind of pretend, I guess, and, um, and do a terrible job. But I worry about the consumerist piece of having children. Now, I can say that very well in the abstract, and yet I find myself thinking when um, my son does something that's particularly um, delightful, I find myself sort of mentioning it to people and making a point of it. And if he does something that I find slightly embarrassing, I feel embarrassed, and I think to myself, it's, it hasn't happened to me, it's happened to him. And there has to be a little bit of that, um, of that separation. It's not always so easily achieved. Unfortunately, so far, he mostly does more adorable than horrifying things. <laughs> but I think with adoptive parents, there's often a conditionality. And when you say, as is accurate, that many adoptive people have further problems, and I should add that my husband was adopted um, by a wonderful family to whom he's very deeply attached. But I think when uh, someone has been adopted, there is always the lingering thought, if 20% of adopted children are returned, that it could happen. And even if the parents would never consider it, and even if the child doesn't anticipate it, the sense of sort of till death do us part, which is a, a line relevant not only to marrying couples but also to parents and children, is sometimes attenuated. I wondered if I could jump off from that to ask, how did the process of working on your books affect the way that you yourselves parent your children? They looked at each other. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, right. I'm, I'm happy to go first. Oh, um, very profoundly, I think. It changed the way I uh, respond to my children in the first place because I think I've recognized that... I recognize the distinction between love, which you know I had from the beginning, and which I think most parents have from the beginning, not all, but most, and acceptance, uh, which... And my parents were very, very, very loving, and they were not always very, very, very accepting, and it caused me a lot of trauma. But I hadn't sort of come up with that distinction. And now I try to be not only loving, but also accepting of my children. I don't know that I always achieve it, but it's what I attempt to do. I also hope, having been through the experiences of the book, that I don't suffer under the illusion that because they are my children, it, they will ultimately all, everything will work out well. I mean, I had a chapter on families of people who commit crimes. I particularly interviewed the parents of Dylan Klebold, who was one of the perpetrators of the Columbine Massacre. I thought his parents were really terrific parents. I would have been perfectly happy. I mean, I'm very fond of my own parents, but I wouldn't have minded having them as my parents. And yet their child did this. And so I think part of what I came away with was the sense of that the sense that you truly know your child is, like most other forms of knowledge, something of a delusion. And that while you can't know what you don't know, you can know that there are things that you don't know. And that awareness, um, that awareness that his reality is different from mine and that he experiences some kinds of suffering that are foreign to me has ended up being a sort of strong motif in my parenting of thinking I can try to find out as much as I can, but I will, I will never know it all. And he should never feel as though my finding it out would somehow destroy the relationship we have. Mm -hmm. I suppose I, I think more it's perhaps made me much very attuned to the, his, his, the experience of grieving. What, what grieving is like as a three-year-old is different to what grieving is like as a four-year-old to a six-year-old. And how... And, and, just the importance of being staying very close and and never I don't know the importance of talking I think if there's a sort of um, if there's a kind of ethical thing in the book it's a, it's against unspeakability it's against the lack of speaking about death because I think that's very 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 damaging and I think it's huge amounts of especially in our culture English culture um, you know People shut down on death, people shut down on grieving, and it's it's actually quite common to not mention the person who has died, which is really a criminal project, you know, on the psyche. Because, of course, the person who has died was alive until fairly recently and was loved and was very had huge operations in the world, you know, I'm talking generally, and then to suddenly not mention them relegates it all to some kind of weird place of shame. And I think that is madness, and so I kind of, I'm very, sort of, I'm very attuned to the fact that no such thing should, you know, that that's a really important part of the dialogue to, to have with a, a child that uh, it's something that has happened, you know, something that has happened and he, we have to, you have to navigate. And it's very cyclical, it comes back and back and back. Like I was just saying to you how, how about, um, he wanted to hear Tom's voice, so we watched mm. films. You know, he hasn't asked to do that before. And then there's the voice, and then he said, he sounds American. I said, he's not American. He <laughs> doesn't know what yeah. Americans sound like if you think he's American. He's just got a very deep voice. Um, but I think that's that's a big deal. Uh, I think there's a lot of damage gets caused, caused by um, 
pretending that people haven't existed when actually they've just died. Um, so yeah, that's that's made me more mad about that. I'm just going to riff on that for one second and say that I feel like the question of shame altogether is a really central question of modernity. Who is ashamed and what are people ashamed of? And when I wrote the book about depression, people said to me, do you really want to talk so openly about that? And I had grown up as a closeted gay person, Mm. and I didn't want ever to be in a closet again. And I thought, I'm not going to have something else about which I think, oh, I wonder whether she knows and... He's probably figured it out, and maybe that person spoke to them, and so on and so forth. And I sort of, I reacted very strongly against the expectation of shame. Mm. But the letters that I get from people, especially around depression, but also around having children with disabilities, are so dripping with shame and embarrassment, and it's such an unproductive um, uh, thing to feel. I mean, you know, I suppose you should be ashamed of um, uh, causing damage to other people um, uh, willfully and selfishly. But I feel like the thing of being ashamed of who you fundamentally are. Mm. It's hugely debilitating. It's, it's absolutely against the self. And one of the things that was very, it was very signally brilliant and emblematic about Tom, in a way, was that you know, he said he wanted to be treated like an organism. Um, it, he had an illness. There was no moral issue. There was no kind of, and he was absolutely devoid of shame. And even when, even when you know things got pretty crackers and he you know couldn't move and had to be sort of lifted and all this kind of stuff, it was just like. The fact that there was no shame, it took me ages to work out why it was all okay, and it was because actually there was no signal saying, oh, we need to not look, or we need to not sort of involve ourselves. And I th- it was so kind of amazingly liberating, and I think that is a really big deal, and I think we're, we're chronically bad at it. Do you think we're at a moment now where death is coming out of the shadows of shame? I mean, there is your work has been part of it, Marion, um, but you had mentioned uh, as well, Andrew, Paul Kalanafi's memoir, which is here, um, and, and several other books now that seem to be dealing in a very personal and profound way with that experience. Are we at some sort of turning point where it, it's possible to talk about this? Not convinced, Mary? Not convinced at all, actually, no. Mm. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. I, I have a friend who's my age and who found the whole business terribly difficult. Tom's dying, and it was because when her father died, it all got locked down completely. And it was just like such a... You kind of thought, what? You know, and it just seems like for children especially to be able to deal with experiences which, which can happen, which are very, very affecting, to be able to help them deal with that and not kind of shut down the conversation so they think, actually, it's much, much worse than it really is, you know what I mean, um, is, is really important. It's really... And in a way, I think all sorts of stuff like schools should teach, you know, it should be taught in schools, it should be... I mean, there's that, that Brecht, Tom uses that line in Brecht saying uh, about the the, the, you know, the human practice of dying and dying should be taught. And I just think it would be, you know, we're, we're living things, we're creatures. Creatures have a beginning, they have a middle, and they have an end. And it's kind of, you can do it in biology, but, you know, you can't do it in a sort of, I don't know, it just seems a kind of big lack, actually. I'm struck by how pervasive the lack is, and I have a nephew who, when he was four, um, I had gone over to read him a bedtime story one day, not yet a parent myself, and there was a book that my sister-in-law had got for him, his mother, that was um, all about a family that raises um, uh, seeing eye dogs for the blind. And so I was going along reading this rather sweet story, and Calvin said, but, he said, but you mean the family brings up the dog and then they just give it away? And I said, well, Calvin, they give the dog away because it's going to someone who can't see and who can help. 
he said, okay, we read another page. And then he said, didn't that person used to have another dog? What happened? And I said, well, the other dog probably died. You know, dogs don't live as long as people. And so now they've got this new dog and this person is going to be able to get around. And he said, is our dog going to die? <laughs> and I said, well, Calvin, sooner or later, but I wouldn't worry about it. And he said, am I going to die? <laughs> and I just thought, there has to be a way to get back to this rather sweet story about the family bringing up the dog. So, um, yes, needs to be exposed earlier on. <laughs> I'm really struck grief and loss for me is, is such a huge component of all of this and what I think is society we I think labels I'm, I'm not I don't really want to present my opinion I'm really interested in your opinion particularly Andrew or generally around labeling and the grief and loss that go with a label special needs looked after children sexuality labels we put on people and groups in society and the loss and the grief that goes with that the un unsaid loss um, and the effect and, then, and therefore the potential usefulness or not of labelling as a mm. concept. I, 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 does that make sense? I'm just interested in your views around that area. It does make an enormous amount of sense. Um, I think there are uh, terrible problems of um, labelling and of the assumptions that go with those labels. So many of the people whom I wrote about in Far From the Tree had discovered that their child had a difference, a disability, or whatever it was that he had or she had, and uh, they were immediately told, um, you know, I mean, some of them were extreme and uh, to the point of seeming almost ludicrous. I met a woman who told me, and other people who'd been in the room told me it was true, that the doctor, when um, he delivered her child, said, you've given birth to a circus dwarf. Um, and there are various other instances, and there was one that was always, to me, particularly kind of off-putting, a, a family who had a child who ultimately turned out to have uh, multiple or rather severe disabilities. But when they had gone to see the doctor who diagnosed the child, um, the doctor said at the end of uh, examining the child, turned to the father, didn't look at the mother, and said take your pretty wife home and make yourself another baby because you'll never get anything out of this one. And those communications took years for those families to recover from. They set you off on a vision of your experience as tragic. And in both of those instances, the families came back from that and actually ended up having very rich life experiences. Um, another mother, on the other hand, described to me having a child who was had something called diastrophic dwarfism, which is very severely disabling, and how she'd gone to um, see doctor after doctor who told her about all of what was wrong with her child, and how she eventually made her way, despite having very little sort of um, in the way of economic or educational privilege, she found her way to an excellent, excellent doctor who was sort of the best person in the world dealing with his condition. And she said, on the one hand, you know, Dr. Kopitz let, made him walk, Dr. Kopitz helped him get through school, Dr. Kopitz did all those things. She said, the day we walked into his office, Dr. Kopitz picked him up, held him in the air and said, let me tell you, that's going to be a handsome young man one day. She said, and it was utterly changing. So I think the earliest stage of the way the information is presented is enormous. But I also think that the, the more general problem of whether you say of somebody, um, this is a person who is disabled and who therefore is lesser, is very pervasive. And I was very struck by it because many people, when I told them about the book before I'd written it, I said, you know, it sort of comes out of my experience of being the gay child of straight parents, and I'm looking at all of these other situations. They said, but you're, you're looking at situations of disabled people. You're not suggesting that being gay is like being disabled. And I said, well, actually, I am suggesting that being gay is like being disabled. 
But in doing so, I'm not trying to insult my gay experience or anyone else's gay experience. I'm trying to explain that what we think of as disability is frequently for the people who are living with it an identity rather than a disability. And that almost anything can be described in identity or disability terms. You know, there are contexts when I'm here, when my American passport feels like a disability. Um, <laughs> there are um, people who have extraordinary sort of challenges who end up building an identity around them. And I think we have to be open to that reality. And finally, I think we have to recognize that in most of the conditions that I was describing in my book, there are two forms of difficulty. It is difficult to have dwarfism because you have um, often a constricted uh, spinal uh, cord, you have a variety of other disabling factors that can come with it that are actually medically problematical and require a medical solution. It is also difficult because people stare at you on the street and they point at you and they laugh at you and the people at your school don't think of you as a potential erotic figure or a love object and you have all of these other experiences which are social experiences. And what we need to try to do a much, much better job of is to distinguish what is actually a medical problem to which a medical solution must be found and what is a social problem to which a social reform ought to be applied. And often we use medical language to stigmatize things that are really social problems, you know, as we did, I mean, the most obvious cases with gay people for such a very long time. When you get away from that disease model, it's amazing what blossoms in its wake. Thank you very much. If, um, if there aren't any further questions, please join me in thanking Andrew and Marion for such a thoughtful and... You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.